0: By way of remembering it, we'll talk about Christ among us and look at some passages from the Gospel of Matthew that um, really help to flesh this out and bring home what this means. Now, of course, Christ said that he would not always be with us, at least not physically. He would ascend to his Father in heaven, but he would send the Comforter. And so Pentecost Sunday is about the Comforter, remembering that we are not alone. But even as Christ said in the Great Commission, he is with us. To the end of the age. And so it's because of that that we can live this life, that we have hope that we can not only be sustained, but also that we can be delivered. So let's look this morning at Matthew's Gospel, the eighth chapter, and begin reading with verse 23, and we'll read down through verse 34. Matthew chapter 8, begin reading with verse 23, And when he got into the boat, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men." And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We thank you that even as we remember the birth of your church, as we remember the giving of the Comforter, And how desperately we rely on him. We come now to your word and pray that the Holy Spirit with your word would make its truth relevant to our hearts. Would transform us, shape us, mold us into the people that you've called us to be. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ among us. Matthew's gospel really takes us on a journey into the life of Jesus. He's careful to show in the first part of his gospel, the word of Christ, particularly in chapters 5 through 7, where he's talking about teaching about the um, the Beatitudes and other teachings of Christ. He demonstrates to us the word, the message of this Redeemer. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he demonstrates the work of Christ, and so he is teaching all that would read that Christ is who he says he is, that through his word and through his work, he has declared himself to be the Son of God. And then, of course, his word and work substantiates that. At the beginning of chapter 8, Matthew relays how Christ cleansed a leper. We see this in verses 1 through 4. Lepers were people that you should not touch, and yet Christ touched him. He was not afraid to go where no one else was willing to go. He cleansed this man and restored him to health. Then he offers... Matthew offers an account of a centurion servant, a Gentile, who was healed at Christ's command. That's verses 5 through 13. Next, he describes the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in in verses 14 through 17. Then he gives us an interaction between Jesus and two would-be disciples. One who wanted to follow Christ and was informed of the great cost that that would bring. And another who'd rather take care of his father. We see that in verses 18 through 22. But in each of these stories, Matthew is demonstrating to the reader, to the audience, Christ's authority over sickness and the call to follow him. That ultimately the the call to be a disciple, to follow Christ, is one that originates with Christ himself. And then in the section that follows that we just read, verses 23 through 9 verse 8, Christ reveals his authority over three things, one over despair, two over demons, and three over disease. But we'll take just the first two stories as our text this morning and spend some time seeing what Christ reveals in these passages. Ultimately, we see that Christ is victorious over nature and he's victorious over the supernatural, that he's declared to be the Son of God because, after all, he created the world, he governs it by the word of his mouth. And also that he has power over principalities, things unseen, the devil himself. Why is this significant? Well, ultimately it's significant because of what it says about him. That Christ is indeed God. That he is the Son of God. Even as John says in John 1.14 John 1, when he says that the word who was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Secondly, it is significant because of what it says to you and I, his disciples. So uh, we'll look at three things this morning. First is Christ, his presence, sustains, delivers, and offends. The presence of Christ sustains, delivers, and offends. Let's first look at the presence of Christ that sustains. We see in chapter 8, verse 23 through 27, a story It begins in a very mundane way. Christ enters a boat and his disciples follow him. After all, that's what a disciple does. You follow your master. Now there's much that we can say about being a Christ follower. These particular men were fishermen and so they were not out of their comfort zone. They were familiar with the Sea of Galilee. They grew up near it. They fished on it. They were familiar with the storms that seemed to come out of nowhere and threatened their very existence. And so they were not, at this point, out of their comfort zone. And so as they enter the boat, the story continues that a great storm occurred at sea. We know, by the way, that Christ wanted them to reach the other side because he tells us as much. He tells them as much in verse 18 of chapter 8. Begins by saying, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So he already informed his disciples of his intention where he was taking them. He disclosed to them their destination. And as they enter the boat with Christ, a great sea or a great storm arises. Verse 24 says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But, there's an interesting conjunction, he, Christ, was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, a seasoned fisherman The disciples would not have been surprised by such a storm. They knew that this was a possibility. But what does seem to surprise them, and this is noteworthy, is the response of Christ. What Christ was doing in the midst of this storm. In fact, it even makes them, it seems to make them a bit angry. The text reveals that Matthew says he was asleep. A very short phrase. Mark's gospel When he relays this account, reveals two things about the storm. First, he says that it's so severe the boat was filling with water. And secondly, that Christ was in the stern of the boat, asleep on a cushion. And according to Mark's gospel, in chapter 4, verse 38 of Mark, and by the way, Mark is written at the mouth of Peter. Matthew is the author of Matthew's Gospel. So what you have here are two different perspectives on the same storm. And Mark says that they go to Christ, they go to Jesus, and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew says things a bit differently. They go to him, they wake him, and they say, save us, Lord, for we are perishing. The first statement, that uttered by Peter, recorded in Mark, um, is an accusation. It is a statement of fact, but it is couched in an accusation. And the second is simply a statement of fact. But both accounts reveal that the disciples are questioning Christ's control over what is transpiring. Christ is in the boat and he's asleep. And whether they truly believed they were going to perish, or if they were simply perturbed that he could be getting a nap while they were fighting for their lives, we do not know. But what is relayed to us by both authors is this suspicion, this discomfort concerning Christ's control over their circumstances. Now, what's even more interesting is how Christ responds. Matthew says that he first rebukes his disciples. He says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, you might expect the first thing Christ to do would be to cause the storm to disappear, to address the circumstances. But he doesn't. The first thing that Christ does is he addresses the disciples. And he challenges them. He says something to them that if it were you and I, I would not want to hear. He says, why are you afraid? Well, isn't the answer obvious? The storm around us that threatens our very life, isn't that reason to fear? After all, Mark says, He says as much in his gospel when he says, we are perishing, but Christ's rebuke to his disciples concerned their faith. He said simply, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he responds. He rises and he rebukes the winds and the sea, and there's a great calm. And the men marvel because they realize that this Messiah, this Savior, this Galilean teacher is more than simply a man. They realize that he is divine. They see in his ability to control the natural world in which they live, his ability to sustain their very life. His response is one that does not, as we often hear, remove them from the storm. In fact, no doubt you've heard this sermon preached many times, and maybe a point of application was that Christ prevents us or he secures us in the storm. But I don't think that was the purpose of Matthew giving us this account, because after all, Christ would take his disciples into the heart of many other such storms. He would tell them that if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. What they do to a green tree, they will do to a dry. He would tell them repeatedly that in this world, you should expect persecution. No, what Christ is demonstrating to the men in the boat is his control over nature, is that he In their midst, Christ among them will not only give them safety, because after all, there's no guarantee that they would not perish. That is not the guarantee he gives them. Their lack of faith has nothing to do with the desirable outcome and everything to do with the fact that they were afraid even though Jesus was with them. Now, are there times in our life that we're afraid? Yes. Faith is not the absence of fear. But what faith does do is enable us to scale the utmost heights because of the presence of God, because of Christ's presence among us. There are oftentimes in our life, in the life of a Christian, where Christ leads us where we don't want to go. In fact, if you look at this first uh, point and you see how that Christ sustained His disciples there on the Sea of Galilee, and you reflect on that, and you realize that Christ sustains us on a daily basis in and out of the vicissitudes of life, you may ask the question, well, what does it look like for Christ to sustain me? Well, I believe it looks like three things that I'd like to make as points of application this morning. First... It means that as a Christ follower, regardless of when and where you may live, there are times that He will take us places we don't want to go. I think it is noteworthy that our first story begins with Christ making the move to get in the boat and His disciples simply following. Because after all, to be a disciple is to follow Christ even to places we don't want to go. But second, Christ responds to us. He sustains us by responding to us in ways that we don't understand. It was inexplicable, no doubt, to the disciples there in the boat why Christ was sleeping in the midst of this great storm. But notice that the Savior who could not be wakened or was not wakened by his environment was wakened by his disciples. They cried out to him in their despair, Save us, we are perishing. And his response to them was, Why are you afraid? Because his presence among us may take us where we don't want to go. The Bible never secures us of, of or assures us that we will be secure to the point of never suffering, of never experiencing trials and tribulation. To the contrary, it says that we will. But his presence among us sustains us So that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of the calamities of life, His presence is more than enough. His presence sustains. His presence gives life. And even if we perish, and I think here of the three Hebrew children who declared as much when they were threatened by the fiery furnace, and they came to King Nebuchadnezzar and they told him, you can do with us as you will. The God that we serve is able to deliver us, but if he does not, know that we will not bow down and worship your idol. The presence of Christ among his people may not prevent us from going where we don't want to go, but it will sustain us in those difficult places. He will respond to us in ways that we don't understand, and ultimately, thirdly, this is the third application from this passage, he will tell us what we don't want to hear. Instead of addressing our circumstances, first he addresses our hearts. He asks us the, pre- the question, why are you afraid? All three scenarios, when Christ takes us where we don't want to go and he says what we don't want to hear and he responds in a way that we do not expect, all three scenarios are meaningful only because he is with us and he sustains us. Now, the second thing that Christ among us accomplishes is deliverance. And we see this because if the disciples were uncomfortable in the midst of the storm, they were really going to be out of their comfort zone when they crossed the lake. Because the country of the Gadareans was a primarily Gentile country. And remember that these are all good Jewish boys. But the country of the Gadareans is primarily Gentile. And what makes matters worse is that when they arrive, their welcoming committee is two demon-possessed men. Not the ideal circumstance. Two demon-possessed men meet Christ coming out of the tombs and we're given here a description that not only were these men demon-possessed, but they lived among the dead and that they were so intimidating, so fearful, that the people in the village were afraid to pass by. They were afraid for their very life. No one could pass that way. And these men, they cry out, In verse 29, they say to Jesus when they see him, when they encounter him, they say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They recognized his presence. They trembled at his presence. They asked him the question, Why are you here? What have we to do with you? Have you come to bring us to our calamity, to our final end before our time? Now, it's interesting that Christ does not pull up a chair and have a theological debate with them. It's what you and I might do. No, he tells them one word. In verse 32, he said to them, Go. But that's prior to them requesting that they be sent to a herd of swine, a herd of pigs. They knew that he was going to cast them out. But they simply wanted to determine where they went. Now, why Christ accommodates the request, we do not know. But what we do know is that he told them with one word, go. And so they came out and went to the pigs. And behold, the whole whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Christ brings deliverance. These demons knew, one, that Jesus was the Son of God, and that, two, His presence meant torment. Mark's gospel, again, is helpful for understanding this passage. Mark relays that they cried out to Christ and said with a shriek, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The presence of Christ in the world heralded the end of the devil's reign and the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The presence of Christ on the opposite shores of the Sea of Galilee was a proclamation to the dominion of the enemy that he had failed. That Christ the King has come and that he is victorious. And so when these demon-possessed men saw Christ, when they knew his presence was among them, they knew that he was interfering with their schemes. He was interfering with their plans. And so Christ brings deliverance to these two demon-possessed men. In the same sense that he spoke to the storm and he said, be still, he speaks to these demons and says, go. He has power over the natural world. He has power over the supernatural. The men were delivered, the pigs were drowned, and the herdsmen were unhappy. Now, by way of application, we can really say two things about the delivering power of Christ among us. One, Christ is willing to go where others are not. When others were afraid to pass by because they they feared for their own safety, not only was Christ intentional about going there, but he told his disciples in verse 18, that's where we're going. And he had that place in mind. Christ is willing to go where others are not. And two, that Christ loves those whom others have forsaken. These men were outcasts. These men were uncivilized to say the least. It was impossible for them to live in an accommodating manner among the other village folk. They were cast out. They were shunned. They were demon-possessed. Everywhere they went, there was havoc and destruction. In fact, things were so bad that according to Mark, when he's telling us this same story, he says that often they had been bound with chains, heavy chains, and they break them as if they were nothing. No one was able to restrain them. And their level of torture and torment was so severe that they would often cut themselves and writhe in pain. And it's to these men when Christ, the Son of God, who lived 33 and a half years on this earth, could have gone anywhere and done anything, it was to these two men that he came. Christ is willing to go where others are not, and Christ loves those whom others have forsaken. I don't know if you have uh, seen the new musical sensation, The Greatest Showman. Um, It's really a phenomenal work, some songs that get stuck in your head and you just can't get them out. But in this movie, in this musical, there is a song entitled, This Is Me. And the lyrics of the song I want to read to you because the first time I heard the song, I thought to myself, the gospel addresses this. Christ addresses this. This is an echo from Eden, from the depths of a human soul suffering under the weight of sin and rejection. And it's exactly to us so like this that Christ comes and brings redemption. The lyrics of the song, the first stanza say, I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, cause we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one loves you as you are. If these two demon possessed men could have sang a song, no doubt they would have sung one very similar to this. Outcasts in society. In this song, we hear the longing deep in the heart of man that summarizes those to whom Christ has come to bring deliverance. The gospel addresses this longing with an acceptance no, 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 a pursuit that takes our broken parts and makes them whole again. It is to these men, these outcasts in society, that Christ comes and He delivers them. He restores them mentally, physically, and spiritually. They are redeemed, and Mark's gospel tells us they actually become missionaries. Even though He is forced out of their coast, out of their region, these men take the good news of the kingdom back to the village that previously would have nothing to do with them. So Christ among us first sustains us. Second, He delivers us. And thirdly, He offends. The end of this account, verses 28 through 34, has always surprised me. Because the herdsmen were the first to spread the news to their small village, that they had been graced with the presence of the king of kings. But the response of the people in the village was not what you would expect. Verse 34 says, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. His presence among them was offensive. Now, you could speculate, but here's the conclusion that I have reached. There will always be those who care more for pigs than people. There will all, in fact it has nothing to do with the pigs, and forget the alliteration here, it has more to do with the pocketbooks. That's where it hit home, is it not? If you think about these legion of swine, these 2,000 swine that were grazing nearby, Probably one of the foremost indicators that this group of people were not Jews. And yet, when they were destroyed, and these two men who were so desperate, who were so hurting, were delivered. The village was in an uproar and they said, Jesus, if this is what you do, we don't want you here. If Christ has never been offensive in your life, I question whether you've ever met him. Christ among us, as a church, as a people, as a society, will offend. The gospel is offensive. In fact, this past week, I was intrigued by the decision that has everyone in an uproar, the decision to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. What was interesting is I followed the news outlets and the media, were the comments made by some of the major news syndicates concerning the selection of the pastors that were chosen to offer prayers at this event. Now, you can say what you like about the pastors. There are obviously theological differences, but for the most part, they're evangelical. They preach the gospel. And one of the criticisms of one of the journalists was based solely on the fact that both pastors had at some point preached that Christ was the only way to salvation. A message that they, the news outlet, considered to be prejudicial against other religions. It is. It is offensive. But it's the truth. The truth that Christ is the only way to God is something that from his own lips he proclaimed when he stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is that offensive? Yes. Now, should we be offensive? No. But when we share the truth of the gospel with others, we should not be surprised if there are those who say we don't want anything to do with that. Jesus, go someplace else. In fact, I would suggest that if that is not the response to some, then we are doing a poor job of communicating the truth of the gospel. So it's not about the pigs, it's about the pocketbook. And let me just very quickly extrapolate on what I mean by that. These people had a kingdom of their own. And it's always been eerie to me how similar the response of the village folk was to the response of the demons. The demon said, are you here to judge us, to torment us before the time? Are you here to mess with our party? Are you here to tear down our kingdom? And in a very similar way, the town people said, we don't want you here. Because Christ among us is offensive. Christ among us will destroy our status quo. Christ among us will unravel the very fabric of our own kingdom building. Because there's only one king. And that king is Jesus. And there is only one kingdom. And that kingdom is the one in which he and he alone reign supremely on the throne. But our desire, whether spoken or unspoken, is often to dethrone him and put ourselves in his place. Earlier I referenced the Great Commission. I said how that Christ in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, when he ascended... He promised his disciples, he said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And as we ponder, as we think, as we prayerfully consider what this means for us as a people, we will conclude, even from these two stories, we will conclude that Christ among us sustains. And that sustenance may not look like we anticipate, but it will always bring deliverance. It will always bring life and that also Christ among us offends. It is his kingdom or no kingdom, which is why when he's teaching about possessions, he's teaching about your pocketbook, what he says is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all that we have need of will be added to us. So his presence among us sustains, it delivers, and it offends. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, as we are reminded through the gospel of Christ, of his mission, as we are reminded of these stories from Matthew of when our Lord Jesus walked the earth and calmed the raging sea, as we are reminded of of Christ and his intent to go to the country of the forsaken, of the Gadareans, and to deliver these demon possessed men, and even as we are reminded of the response of the townsfolk. We see in our own heart, in our own lives, how that you, Lord Jesus, have called us to be disciples. You will sustain, you will deliver, and you will offend. And we pray, O oh God, that you would crush us on the altar of Christ's sacrifice, and that you would take our lives and use them for your kingdom purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.